For those of you who just joined us, I am Nefertita Diar. I am Acting Director for the Barnard Center for Research on Women. Thank you again for coming. It's been an exciting day so far. Um, on the, in, today in this conference on the state of democracy, we had an invigorating panel discussion this morning. And um, I'm sure examples of participatory democracy during the, uh, the lunchtime workshops, um, collaborations with activist organizations. I want to thank everyone again for their participation in this conference, for sharing your political ideas and experiences, putting the putting those out there towards transforming democracy, and as I, I put it earlier, as changing the times. I have the great honor and pleasure of introducing Lana Guineer, Bennett Bosky Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, civil rights lawyer and scholar, social activist and public intellectual, and a leading expert on possibilities for revitalizing voting in the United States and creating a truly democratic electoral process. The first black woman to gain tenure at Harvard Law School, Professor Grenier was assistant counsel and head of the Voting Rights Project for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in the 1980s, and worked in the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Justice Department in the late 1970s. She has been among the leading figures in the efforts to broaden and deepen political participation in the United States, calling attention to the deep problems in the democratic process education, and other institutions of power as a result of social marginalization along lines of race and gender. More importantly, her work in writing and speaking has been to dedica dedicated to rebuilding a progressive democratic movement informed by the critiques of racialized communities and her reconceptualization of issues of diversity through such notions as confirmative action and political race as an aspirational project. Professor Guineer is the author of numerous books, including The Tyranny of the Majority, Fundamental Fairness in Representative Democracy, Lift Every Voice, Turning a Civil Rights Setback into a New Vision of Social Justice, and most recently, The Miner's Canary, Enlisting Race, Resisting Power, Transforming Democracy, which she wrote with Gerald Torres. This book has been called A Passionate Call for Social Change and Progressive Action, and in it, Professor Guineer and Gerald Torres argue for the project of political race as a concept that is diagnostic, putting to use the experiences and perceptions of racialized communities for understanding and signaling a more systemic critique of our current political system, as well as aspirational and activists seeking social transformation and democratic renewal through the aid of such a critique. She is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Sachs Freund Teaching Award from Harvard Law School, Class of 2002, the 1995 Margaret Brent Women Lawyers of Achievement Award, the Champion of Democracy Award, and I've lost count here, eight, nine, ten honorary degrees. <laughs> Please join me in welcoming Lonnie Guinier. Thank you very, very much. It's very exciting to be here and to have participated as a member of the audience in the morning session. 
And what I'd like to do is to try to identify some of the themes from the morning that I hope to continue into the afternoon. And I don't mean this as a um, judgment on what was important or not important in terms of what was discussed in the morning, but just things that um, I happen to find salient. And of course, during the question and answer portion, which is my favorite part of um, the experience of teaching, you can remind me of other ideas that I somehow missed. So the first part of the morning session, or at least the first theme in the uh, morning session, is that of critique. And there were a number of critiques of the current democratic system. Um, one of them came from the uh, New York State Senator, Liz Kruger, who talked about the ways in which many of her constituents seem not to care about government. And when she tries to solicit them on their way to the subway station to get them to uh, register to vote, they tell her, well, what does government have to do with me? So the sense that people feel isolated from their government was definitely a critique. And a related critique, I would argue, came from um, Signe Wilkinson, although she wasn't necessarily making it as a critique. The critique came from the, um, the, the young woman that everyone said was very well educated by her parents because they had taught her to actually look at the issues and not just at the personalities. And Signe's response was, well, but personality matters, and that's what everyone is focused on, is likability and emotional resonance with the candidate. And I think that those two critiques actually relate to, in, in a fundamental way, the problem that I would like to, um, um, to discuss. And I want to tell you a story to give you a sense of the nature of that problem. And the problem for me is not just making a critique of the current system or using the fact, another um, critique was that there are only 86 members of Congress and 16 senators who are women, and that's suggested that there is a lack of equality in our political system, and that's clearly true. My question is, well, what would equality look like, right? Is equality simply that 50% of the Senate and 50% of the House of Representatives are women, or excuse me, even more? Or do we need to really fundamentally reconceptualize our understanding of democracy itself and work within a transformed understanding of democracy to begin to then work through an idea of equality within democracy. And there was movement in that direction as well. Um, uh, Christine talked about a concept, uh, Christine Sierra, about comprehensive democracy in which we have to unite the concepts of participatory democracy and representative democracy in a much more comprehensive understanding of democracy so that we're not just talking about what I call electocracy. Okay, and electocracy in, in many ways captures the critique as well as um, the, the solution. Electocracy means democracy has been reduced to a single fixed moment of choice. Voters participate in democracy by going to the polls and casting a ballot. And once they do that, they've discharged their responsibility. And they may do it in the very informed way that your parents uh, educated you so that you cast that vote based on the issues. But once you've cast the vote, you're absolved from any responsibility for further participation because the key actors in an electocracy are the elected officials. And so an electocracy means that the people have 
taken um, their power, right? It's supposed to be of the people, by the people, for the people, and I would say, you know, with the people, taken their power and discharged it or transferred it to the elected officials to whom they then defer, as if those elected officials are the embodiment of our democracy. And so the idea is, if we elect our elected officials, if we elect our representative, then we are a true democracy. And those, um, we contrast that to monarchy where the um, people who run the government are there because they inherited their office, or a um, fascist dictatorship in which people who run the government seized power and um, just took control. And I want to suggest that none of those are about democracy, because democracy is when the people are engaged in collective decision-making and deliberation about the problems that affect us, and are doing so not just through voting, although of course voting is an important um, means of exercising power, but through what I've started to call collective efficacy, through a sense that by connecting to fellow citizens and connecting to people in their community, they are going to mobilize and organize to exercise their power to hold their elected officials accountable even after they are elected. Not simply to rely on the election as the exclusive source of accountability. Now this involves many shifts. It involves shifts in how we measure success. There was a young woman who said that she had been very involved in several campaigns and felt um, discouraged because she had lost both of them. And the response was, well, think about William F. Buckley, who lost many uh, campaigns but never gave up. And part of what I think that response involved and what I'm going to talk about is shifting our measure of success. We think if we win an election that somehow we've won. But what have we won? That's just the beginning. Right? You need not only to hold your elected officials accountable, you need to protect them when they are um, being challenged. You, you, you need to play an active role throughout the political process, in other words. So let me start with the story. The story is one that I've um, told many times, but I feel very attached to it because I think it captures in, in many ways the, um, the move that I'm trying to make. And it involved my son when he was leaving Philadelphia. We were moving to Harvard. Um, to, well, he wasn't moving to Harvard. He was moving to Cambridge. But we were moving from Philadelphia. And his friends were giving him a going-away party. And they decided that they would have all of the kids play um, relay races. And the uh, goal of the relay race was to take a, an egg, a hard-boiled egg or a golf ball, depending on um, what, what part of the uh, afternoon we want to discuss, and carry it on a spoon from one part of the backyard to another, and then transfer the spoon, and you had to hold the spoon with the stem of the spoon, not cupping it, to the next person on your team. And they decided that they were going to divide the teams into the girls versus the boys. So, you know, on your mark, get set, go, and... They have the relay race, and the girls' team wins. So the boys, of course, want a rematch. <laughs> they run the relay race again. The boys start to cheat. Okay, so the rule was you can't hold the stem, you can't hold the cup of the spoon, you have to hold it 
by the stem, they started to cup the um, spoon to get a better grip. They moved from the egg to the golf ball and they started to, to um, catapult the ball toward the uh, other end of the yard. But despite all of their efforts, the girls' team still won. <laughs> so there are a group of us who are academics and we're sitting around observing this uh, team <laughs> play. And as you can uh, suspect, we started to deconstruct the game. And we are thinking about what this says in terms of gender dynamics and the fact that girls are more relational and so they you know, have a collaborative spirit and the girls follow the rules and so you know, they move steady and um, deliberately and if you're carrying an egg or a golf ball on a spoon, that's much more effective than racing as fast as you can to the other end of the yard. And we're having this very interesting conversation and my mom, who um, was a high school English teacher in her 80s at the time, interrupts us and she says, well, who designed the game? turned out the girls had designed the game. The hosts of the party were girls. Now, my son, who thought he was the guest of honor at this um, event, was very upset. He didn't care about our deconstruction or who designed the game. Right? He, he was upset because once the girls had won the game, they then felt power to determine the rules for all the rest of the games. And one of the rules for the rest of the games is that no boys could play. <laughs> so what's the point of this story vis-a-vis -vis democracy? Power corrupts, okay. That's one good point. But I go back to, my, did you have a comment? No, you're just raising your hand. My mom's question, who designed the game? When we think about power and power corrupting, we look at the visual, the, the visual competition. We look to the conflict that we can see, and we see who wins and who loses, and then what they do with their winning or their losing. But we don't necessarily go back to the level of agenda setting. Who designed the game? And that's what I would like to focus on today. Who designed the game? And then, of course, the third dimension, if the first is the visual conflict and you can actually observe who's winning and who's losing, and the second is the agenda setting, who's designing the rules of the game, the third is the justification that the winners give to the losers to convince the winners that they deserve to win, and most importantly, to convince the losers that they deserve their lot in life, right? The girls are now entitled to design all the rest of the games because they've won. That's now the prerogative of power. And the boys, my son is sitting there just complaining, right? He doesn't know what to do in light of this um, organized um, uh, conquering uh, group in the backyard of his friend's home. Now, it's not an accident when we're talking about democracy, especially in the United States, that our system of democracy was designed by white men who own property. And some of that property were slaves. And they designed a system that borrowed from the monarchy that they thought they were replacing. And they designed a system in which the assumption was that 
elections were a means of ratifying the natural aristocracy of a community, the natural leaders of a community. So you didn't want to have competitive elections because in some ways that was an insult to the people who were running. The real question was, who was the person of great character who would be most capable of leading this community and capable of leading the community by virtue of their wisdom so that they could rely on their expertise, their sense of accomplishment. They owned property. They were not um, supposedly engaged in partisan battles. They were the trustees of the community. Or in other contexts, they might have been called the proprietors of the community. And this was a proprietorship. So the idea was that elections were a means <laughs> right, of dancing. Uh, elections were a means of retaining power in a particular class and giving other people a feeling that that retention of power was somehow legitimate. Now, they designed this system, as I said, based on the English system, where representation, representational democracy, originated where the king sent out his representatives to collect taxes. So the representatives were not representing the people. The representatives were representing the sovereign to the people. Right? That's the origin of representative democracy that we then borrowed and converted into this idea of um, the natural aristocracy of the community. Therefore, it is not surprising when we complain and Signe says to us, well, people are focused on the candidate's qualities, that we have a candidate-centered electocracy. We have a system, the rules of the game, a winner-take-all system, in which you vote for a candidate who then gets all of the power based on getting 51% of the vote. And that person who gets elected presumably represents all of the people, including the 49% who voted against him or her. Now that's a really interesting concept. You are represented by somebody you voted against. So then you come back to, to Liz's question. Well, she goes to the um, subway and she's asking people why they're not participating. Well, think about the way in which we gerrymander districts, particularly in New York City. We, we, that's a misstatement, the elected officials, the incumbent politicians, essentially decide the outcome of elections at least at the congressional level, at the state senatorial level, at the um, state representative level, city council level, by the way they draw the district line. Okay, again, my mom's question. Who designed the game? Who is setting the agenda? We can focus on who's winning or losing an election, but we are missing the more fundamental point of looking back to see who's designing the rules of the game and what is their agenda. And I would argue their agenda, in, we're talking about incumbent politicians, is to stay in office because 
elected officials have begun to see their role as that of a career, right? This is not simply a time to be of service to your community. This is a career, and the way in which you serve your community is by advancing your career. So you see many times where elected officials may get elected on a platform in which you agree with all of their positions, right? You do your homework and you look at healthcare and you look at um, environmental issues and you look at education and you say, boy, this is a person who embodies what I believe and then they get elected and somehow they don't deliver. Well, part of what happens is that they have an ongoing relationship not with the voters, because they don't have to go back to see the voters until two or four or even six years later. They have an ongoing relationship with the funders who are crucial to their electoral um, sustainability because they have to be able to raise enough money, not just to compete in the next election cycle, but to provide a disincentive for people to run against them, right? They have to have a war chest, right? When you talk about can candidates and they have a war chest, that is to discourage people from challenging them in the future. And they have other techniques for discouraging challengers. One of the best ones is to demobilize voters, right? So Liz is unusual in that she's in her uh, district trying to get people to register to vote and to participate Many, many elected officials are invested in not having more people participate. Now, why would that be? The more people who participate, the less you can control the outcome of the election. You want the electorate that got you into office and no more, right? Because that was a wise electorate. <laughs> so there are all of these incentives built into the system to create a sense that our elected officials are powerful strangers to whom we must defer. And we, the people, we are not playing an active role except in the context of an election campaign and except as voters. And I want to suggest that we, the people, have a much more important and vigorous role to play and that if we want people to be engaged in democracy, if we want to think about democracy as a project that we all care about, then we have to go beyond electocracy and begin to look at ways in which people can participate in a much more active sense. Now, by active, I don't mean that you show up at a single um, city council meeting as an individual with a complaint. You will not be heard. Or if you are heard, you will be um, dismissed and you'll leave even more angry than when you showed up. So this is not simply telling you as an individual, go fight City Hall. It's saying we have to reconceptualize your relationship to other sources of power. And the other sources of power are not simply the person who holds formal power in your name, including the person who holds formal power in your name that you voted against because you're one of the 49%. Think about the power that you have from relationships with other people in your community, horizontal relationships with your neighbors. And I want to talk and give you a couple of examples 
of people who have exercised power based on building power from the bottom up, not simply waiting for power to be delivered to them from the top down. So the first story is um, a humorous one. And it's about a Brazilian dramatist whose name is Augusto Boal. And in 1992, he had a um, theater company that was going out of business because the political party that was in power, that was subsidizing his company, had lost in the previous election. So his company wanted to go out of business in style. And in Brazil, the place where you want to be to, to really have a joyous exit is the carnival. In order to get a slot in the carnival, you have to get a political party to sponsor you. So they went to the Workers' Party, which is now the party in power, and they appealed for a slot so that they could perform as a way of joyously exiting the public stage, at least temporarily. And the Workers' Party said, fine, we'll give you a slot, but one of you has to run for office on our ticket. So Boal and his um, actors and actresses deliberate and they decide Boal is going to run. So his campaign slogan was, vote for me, elect my theater company. <laughs> and he won. Okay, vote for me, elect my theater company. Now when the theater company and Boal were elected, they transformed the idea of a representative so that he created constituency districts, teachers, sanitation workers, nurses, and each one of those districts participated in what he called legislative forum theater that was facilitated by one of the actors or actresses in his theater group. Now, they would ask the people, the nurses or the um, sanitation workers, what is a problem that is confronting you that you would like us to try and work through? And they created a little skit around that problem with a conflict. And then the challenge was for members of the audience to interrupt the action and come on stage and show how they could solve that problem by shifting the way one or more of the individuals in the skit acted or by changing the premises of the um, interaction. And they created these skits with each of these constituency groups, AIDS activists, and they had a theater festival in which they brought all of the skits together and they had critiques from the other constituency groups. And out of that process, they came up with bills that Boal then introduced into the city council and he got 13 bills past the city council through this process. Now you may say, wow, but Bawal's colleagues on the city council were not impressed. They said to him, you know, Gusto, you think you're so smart because you've gotten 13 bills passed, but none of them came from your own head. So Bawal is concerned, right? He thinks he's smart, but it gets to him, so he decides to go home and think on his own about a bill that he could introduce by himself, and he remembers that when he was in Sweden, they had a system where when you crossed the street, 
instead of just having a visual cue that it was safe to cross, they would have the sound of tweeting birds to alert blind people that it was safe to cross the street. So he writes up this little bill suggesting that they introduce the same traffic convention in um, Rio. He then goes to a group of his disabled constituents to inform them with great pride that he on his own has introduced a bill into the um, hopper. And his constituents are horrified. Now, Boal cannot understand this at all. His constituents are angry. He says, I don't understand. This works so well in Sweden. And his constituents responded, yes, but in Sweden, drivers stop at red lights. You want to get us killed. So Boal immediately ran, pulled the bill from the hopper, and when he left after two terms, he could proudly say he never introduced a bill that came from his own head. So that's one example of an active group of constituents who are participating not only in helping to make law, but in holding their elected official accountable when he starts to move in a direction of um, acting autonomously. Another example, and this comes um, from the United States, it comes from the Civil Rights Movement, it comes from the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955, and most people when they think about the Montgomery bus boycott think about two people. They think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and they think about Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks is the seamstress who was tired and Martin Luther King Jr. was the leader who somehow organized um, people in Montgomery to stay off the buses and after a year the uh, bus company and, and, and the city somehow, with the aid of the Supreme Court, relented and allowed blacks now to ride on the buses wherever they, um, to take a seat on the bus wherever they wanted. Now that story misses the important role that women activists played in, in the Montgomery bus boycott, and I say activists with a plural. First thing you need to know about Rosa Parks is that she worked for a white woman whose name um, was Virginia Durr, and she was a seamstress. She helped to um, sew some of uh, Mrs. Durr's daughter's dresses, and Mrs. Durr was a progressive, and Mrs. Durr sent Rosa Parks to something called the Highlander um, Folk School about six weeks before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. And one of the important things that Rosa Parks saw at this Highlander workshop were black and white people working together in a cooperative spirit toward a vision that they shared. And that gave her a sense of hope. So when she decided she was not going to give up that seat, she was galvanized by this sense that there were other people that were going to support her. And not just the people that she had seen in this utopic um, folk school in uh, Tennessee, but Joanne Robinson and a number of other black women had been trying to organize to boycott the buses on a number of other occasions. And the night that Rosa Parks was arrested, they swung into action went to Alabama State College where Joanne Robinson was um, a faculty member and using state mimeograph machinery wrote up a call for a boycott which they mimeographed and were going to uh, 
hand out the next day. And then it occurred to them, well, maybe they should check with a few other people to make sure that others were on board. And they called a gentleman who was a Pullman porter, who was considered the go-to um, man in Montgomery. His name was E.D. Nixon. And he said, you know, it's amazing that you had this idea. I had the same idea. I've been sitting at my kitchen table with a map, drawing lines, you know, and a, um, uh, a yardstick, measuring the distance from one part of Montgomery to the other. And I realized that there is no part of Montgomery where somebody couldn't walk to another part of Montgomery. And so this coalition came to being Martin Luther King was not involved at that point. In fact, he was elected a few days later to head the Montgomery Improvement Association, which was the organization that ultimately spearheaded the boycott. He was elected in part because nobody else wanted to run because they thought it was too dangerous. So they figured this newcomer, right, he had just arrived um, about a year earlier, would be the perfect person to take this public role. And at the first mass meeting that was held that night, the night that um, they had a one-day boycott, Rosa Parks was arraigned, and the leadership of the Montgomery Improvement Association was trying to decide whether to continue the boycott. Maybe they had made their point because all of these black people had stayed off the bus for one day. But they didn't have enough time in the, um, the, in the day to decide it as this little elite group, so they decided they'd put the matter to the mass meeting. And that's when King, with his powerful presence, gave a brilliant speech in which he synthesized the um, Constitution of the United States and the Supreme Court's decision in Brown with the spiritual and religious backgrounds of the people in the church and created this galvanizing atmosphere, but it didn't just rely on King's rhetoric. The people in the church then had to vote. Were they going to continue the boycott beyond that one day? And it was unanimous. But what kept that boycott going, and imagine 50,000 black people in a single city boycotted the buses for more than one year. And they kept that boycott going through the power of these mass meetings. They had mass meetings at least once a week and often several times a week. Now, many of you have been to meetings and they are not always an inspiring experience. So I'm not advocating the notion that democracy depends on your commitment to attend meeting after meeting after meeting. But I want you to consider that the Montgomery bus boycott could not have succeeded without those mass meetings because it was not just a way of disseminating information, right? This was before cell phones. This was before texting. This was before the Internet. And remember, people were now, many of them didn't even have telephones. People were walking. But they came to those mass meetings, many of them early, so Bayard Rustin, for example, describes a mass meeting that started at 7 o'clock. People started coming to that meeting at 4 p.m. Now, why did they get there early? It wasn't just that they were looking for a seat. 
They came to that meeting because they wanted to talk to the other people who were involved in the boycott and gain a sense of connection and a sense of courage and a sense of commitment from the conversations they had one-on-one, -on -one, two on two, with the other people who were sitting in the pews. And oftentimes, the people who gave King the most important inspiration were the women in that community who would stand up and, in fact, Mother Pollard was infamous for doing this, and tell him on the days when they thought he wasn't looking too well, that they were with him. They were behind him. And when he left town one time during the boycott and rumors started to um, circulate, undermining his authority, many of these same women came together to organize, to rebut and respond to those rumors. The power, in other words, of that boycott was not simply the power of one woman refusing to give up her seat, nor was it the power of one brilliant preacher. Although both were courageous and both were important, it was the power of a community of people who were committed to shared sacrifice. Middle-class blacks donated their cars so that they could have carpools at a time when having a car right, was a very unusual thing not only in 1955, but in the South and among blacks. So it was a sense of shared sacrifice and a common vision that brought them together through those mass meetings. Bob Moses, in fact, who was an activist during the Civil Rights Movement in Mississippi, said the most important thing that the Civil Rights Movement brought to blacks in Mississippi was not the vote. It was the opportunity to meet the opportunity to meet. And the reason it was so important, not just, again, the endless meeting where people drone on and on, it was the opportunity to deliberate about the kinds of action that people in the community were prepared to take. It was an opportunity to build on the collective intelligence and the collective knowledge of the people who were experiencing the worst of Southern oppression. So it was not just the northern students who came to Mississippi during the 60s who created enormous excitement about Freedom Summer. It was the interaction between the outsiders and the insiders through this conversational process. Septima Clark went around teaching people how to read and write for the purpose of passing literacy tests so that they could vote. And she didn't do that in a schoolhouse and with a set of formal um, books. She would use the newspaper, giving people a sense that they had ownership of their government, of their democracy. It was not just the proprietors. It was not just the aristocrats. It was not just the people who were getting elected who ran the government, that the people themselves had information, they had energy, they had power to help make those decisions themselves. Now, the last example that I'm going to give you comes from British Columbia. And this is going back in some ways to the critiques that I mentioned in the beginning of um, my talk. 
in British Columbia, they had a very similar problem to what we have in the United States in terms of using winner-take-all elections. In fact, the only countries in the world that still use winner-take-all single-member districts are former colonies of Great Britain. Only countries in the world that still use that system. So we think we're such a premier democracy, and maybe we were among the first, right? But that's like saying that the horse and buggy technology of the um, 18th century is something we're so proud of that we should continue to use horses and buggies and not bother with the internet. So in British Columbia, there was a disconnect between the number of votes that a particular um, candidate was getting or a particular party was getting and the number of seats that they got in the legislature. And it created a lot of um, concern. In some ways, the, the debate about the superdelegates in the context of the Democratic Party primary is similar in that people are, are, are concerned as to how the elected body or the non-elected, in the case of the superdelegates, mirrors or represents the electorate. Is there a connection? The same way that uh, Signe was talking about the fact that the Congress doesn't mirror or reflect our um, diversity when you only have 86 women in Congress or 16 women in the Senate. Well, this created a big uproar in Canada, and the uh, head of the Liberal Party said that if the Liberal Party comes back into office, he would convene a citizens' assembly to deliberate about a new system for voting in Canada. And it turns out that the Liberal Party eventually won, and he kept his word and created something called the Citizens' Deliberative Assembly. This assembly was selected randomly. It was like the way you would get a jury notice. People were asked if they, except it was voluntary, people were asked if they wanted to participate, and they picked names out of the hat from each of the constituency districts in British Columbia. They ended up with 168, 169 um, representatives, all ordinary citizens, who met over the course of a year on a weekend, deliberating about election systems. They heard from political scientists, they heard from elected officials, but they ultimately decided based on conversations with each other and with their neighbors. And uh, one uh, woman was on the radio not too long ago, Shoni Field, and she was talking about the importance of those conversations with each other because she was from Vancouver, which is an urban community, and the conversation she had with some of the people from rural British Columbia were really important in terms of helping her to understand the different perspectives that people might have on what an elected body or a deliberative body should look like. So one key point is that they were modeling deliberation, and these were citizens who had no prior experience necessarily with electoral politics, you know, in, in terms of being um, an expert in it, but they learned and they learn from the experts, and they learn from each other. Now, British, the, the political parties were not too enthusiastic about the outcome because the Citizens Deliberative Assembly came up with the idea of scrapping winner-take-all single-member districts, and they wanted to move to something called the single transferable vote, which they thought fit the, the concerns of their neighbors as well as um, 
the other people that they consulted. But the um, politicians only gave the Citizens Deliberative Assembly $800 for public education. And it was going to be voted on by all of the voters of British Columbia. $800. People in the Deliberative Assembly contributed their time for free. They put up money. They were so committed to this process. And when it came time for voting, the matter passed by 57.8% of the vote. But there was a problem. Remember my mom's question, who designed the game? So the politicians had said, the, um, the head of the Liberal Party said, in order to pass, you needed 60% of the vote. So it didn't pass. So what's the lesson from all of this? <laughs> well, we have some people saying we need revolution. I think we need revolution, but I'm not into violence. I am into a revolution of ideas. And part of what we need to do is to begin to think outside of the current box that we are in. You must participate in that box because that's the box you're in. But you need not think about that box as defining your life or your vision or your future. And I want to end by referring to um, a, a, a story that I heard on NPR a couple of um, months ago where Jim Wallace was on a program with Krista Tippett called Speaking of Faith. He's a liberal evangelical Christian. And he was talking about politicians and the, the, the need to bring a moral framework back into our discussion of politics on the left, not just on the right. And he said, the way you can identify a politician in Washington is to look to see who is walking around with a wet finger in the air. Okay, with a wet finger in the air. Because they are trying to see which way the wind is blowing. And he said, we don't need any more wet-fingered politicians in Washington. Right? We don't need for the people to simply find a politician or an elected official based on their temperament or their personality or their program that we can defer to who's then going to simply walk around with a wet finger to the air, to the um, wind. What we need to do, he said, is we have to change the wind. We all have to become wind changers. And it is when the people can change the wind that we will, in fact, have our democracy back. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are recording the questions. Will you take the questions from the floor? Um, and I would suggest that you use the microphone here. And if you would like to line up, that would be wonderful. So the floor is yours. No, the floor is yours. Now, one thing that I should say,
because I noticed in the morning we had a long line of people and then the people at the very end didn't really get the same kind of interaction as um, others. Before you ask your question, I would like to give everyone a chance, two minutes, to talk to your neighbor and ask them the question that you would like to ask. Okay, just take two minutes. Then you're free to come up and ask it out loud. You're free not to ever share it with anyone else. I'm not going to call on you. <laughs> just ask the question to your neighbor. And we'll, we'll count... Thirty more seconds. Okay. Now, we're going to reconvene. And guess what? You're free to continue the conversation with your neighbor after this um, symposium is over. Or bring the conversation to the mic. Yes. Mine. That's coming out, right? My name is Stephanie Fraser. I'm with the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. The first thing I want to say is thank you. Thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to you. And my question is um, very quick. What did they mean by single transferable vote? Okay. A single transferable vote is a system of proportional representation. And when I say proportional representation, it is not a quota. It is not a set aside. It is not an electoral register. It simply means that it's, it's used in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was used, in fact, in New York City for a number of years um, during the 1940s and late 1930s. And it basically is called, in other contexts, choice voting. So you essentially list the um, candidates of your choice in order, and they count your vote 
your number one vote first, and there's a threshold that you need in order to, that the candidate needs in order to get elected, and when somebody gets to that threshold, they are then elected, and then their extra votes are redistributed to the second choice, and then you count the second choice people, and it's a system for electing members of a collective decision-making body. Okay, so the city council in New York used that system for um, about 11 years. And actually, when the city council in New York used that system, more people participated in city council meetings, more um, insurgent politicians of uh, both parties, Republicans and uh, Democrats, were elected. The machines didn't like it, right? But the League of Women Voters liked it. The Chamber of Commerce liked it. It was a very popular system, but it became a um, casualty of the Cold War. And the fact was that I think one or two people who were affiliated with the Communist Party had gotten elected, and that was enough to just sabotage the whole system, even though uh, they were clearly a very small uh, percentage of the city council. So it's a system in which you get to um, rank order your, um, your, your, your preferences, and it encourages you to vote for your most desired candidate because you won't be wasting a vote for that person. If, if that person doesn't get elected, then they will count your, um, second, your, your, your second preference. So it's a way of making sure that everybody's preferences on some level are respected, and the 49% who lose are not being represented by somebody that they didn't vote for. Yes. Um, I, 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 I never knew that Rosa Parks worked. I, I'm a civil rights 60s person, and I never realized that Rosa Parks worked for Virginia Doerr. Yes, oh, seems oh, that is amazing. <laughs> that is really amazing. Uh, I know Sue Thrasher. And, and um, Clifford Durr, who was Virginia Durr's husband, also played a very pivotal role in the civil rights movement in I Montgomery. But I also wanted to just briefly chime in with uh, another issue from the civil rights movement, another, uh, the idea of uh, participation from Sophie Carmichael, which I just discovered the other day. Uh, Stokely Carmichael was an extraordinarily pretty, um, charismatic uh, leader of the... Say pretty? Pretty. Stokely is very pretty. <laughs> Gorgeous. And um, very, very, very charismatic and dynamic. I have been mesmerized. Oh, I've been... Anyway. But I, I found a quote from Stokely the other day. And it, when you hear about the 60s, and this is really important because the 60s is still resonating today. I mean, it is in the air. The media loves to say, make love, not war, and to publish, to, to um, mediate all the mass demonstrations, mass, 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 masses of people. Um, but they forget about all of the um, community organizing that SNCC did and Ella Baker did. And it was all of this community participation, people learning how to support each other, listening to each other, vitalize each other by listening to each other's ideas. Um, and I found this quote from Stokely, which is, we want to participate in the decisions which affect our lives. And if you hear that, it has a real black rhythm to it. We want to participate in the decisions that affect our lives. And that's another slogan that went through that period, which people, that it just gets buried. Because it's not mass. And that's the other thing I wanted to say. It's real easy to romanticize the people. 
That's what we do in this country, you know. Like, we do that. Romanticize the people. Who are the people? Exactly. Who are the people? I mean, that's why you ended your speech. The people must rise up. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But in order to do that, um, in the civil rights movement, okay, well, I don't really have a question, so. But the issue is, we live in a, we, we're not in a situation where we have to make sacrifices. Okay. Okay. Well, Thank you. Um, and tell us your name and okay, my, something that you think we should know about you. My name is Sansara Taylor. I write for Revolution newspaper. I am a revolutionary. Um, and I guess here's, I really appreciate the stories you told from the civil rights movement about the way that change actually came from the people and not from the politicians. I guess my question is, and then I, and an invitation is that, isn't it time that we get beyond trying to perfect a system of democracy that is fundamentally rooted in exploitation and empire from foundations and slavery down to today with a million, the blood of a million Iraqis and just the whole state of the world. And I guess I want, I, and that's sort of my question. Don't we need to open this up? Actual revolution and revolutionary alternatives. And my invitation is that next Sunday I'm holding, uh, helping organize an event on March 9th at 4 o'clock on re-envisioning revolution and communism, bringing forward what, what has been done to a visionary and viable alternative to this system that's been brought forward by Baba Bacon. And I want to invite people to that. But don't you think this needs to be more a part of the discourse in terms of if we're going to have actual radical movements and student movements and this sort of thing? Well, I would definitely um, encourage, in, in some ways I'm now echoing the comments from the morning. I think that we need more ideas, not fewer ideas. And I certainly am open to new ideas. So I'm happy to rethink democracy. On the other hand, I also think it's really important for people to understand that we don't yet have a democracy so that so that we are, we're not starting from where we are now and trying simply to fix it, but we are being visionary in, in trying to in, in trying to contemplate or imagine where we could be. That's number one. But number two, I actually think that people need to spend more time understanding the way in which other countries function democratically. We are so arrogant about our system. I mean, one of the stories that I didn't get to tell is, uh, again, about Brazil, and it's from a, a city in Brazil called Porto Alegre, in which the community participates in budgeting for the uh, city. And 100,000 people have been involved in what they call participatory budgeting in Porto Alegre, Brazil. And it's a process where anybody who lives in the community can show up for a meeting and then elect representatives who are given information about the budget, and then th those representatives make decisions and come back and uh, have to report back to the community. But it's a completely different system for decision-making that's much more democratic, in my view, in terms of what um, Christine Sierra was talking about, this comprehensive democracy where you're not giving up on representative democracy, but you are including a much more participatory project. So if what you're talking about is that kind of comprehensive uh, rethinking about representation and participation, I certainly invite you to participate in, all, in, in this 
in, in this project of, of, of trying to excite people about the possibility that they can make a difference. Yes. Hi, I'm Barbara Elovic. I'm a writer. I was a student here. I was a writer. Oh, I hate microphones. I was a student here about 30 years ago. I wanted to know I, I, how you apply the model and the examples you gave were really, to me, understandably applicable locally, but how you apply them nationally here in a country in crisis. Well, I think that you have to start local, right? I mean, to me, one of the powers of the Montgomery bus boycott is that it was a local effort that gained national and international um, attention. And you need the face work. You need to be able to build relationships with other people that are relationships of trust and relationships of respect because you are relying on these other people to work together. So I don't think you can start at the national level and then um, take off. On the other hand, there certainly does seem to be a lot more energy about this election in uh, 2008 than I have seen in my lifetime. On the other hand, I would hate for it to result in having a single person elected president, and we all defer to that person's knowledge and expertise and intelligence to then run the country, and the, and the people go home. So part of the challenge is to start at, start at the local level where people are involved in helping to make decisions, not just helping to select the leaders who will then make the decisions. Hi, um, I'm Alex Traub. I'm a high school junior at the Collegiate School. Great. Yeah. Um, and my question is, uh, you talked about this box that we're all forced to participate in in order to kind of have, a, have an effect in our society. I, and I understand that was mostly in terms of process, but to the ends that it also has to do with the people who are in that process, to what extent do Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton's candidacy, candidacies represent some kind of you know, change or even destruction of that box, or instead just kind of an expansion of that box? And to be happy about those candidacies and really be excited about them, obviously is good. But in some way, is it also kind of accepting some kind of complacency? I, I think I agree with you. No, it's, it's a question. It wasn't a statement. It was a question. Oh, okay. <laughs> if, if what you're saying is simply changing the guard, the identity of the guardians, without fundamentally altering the rules of the game, may give us the appearance of greater equality, but ultimately may lead to greater legitimacy for the status quo, then I agree. And I do think that that's a view of equality that we have, um, whether we're interested in issues of race or gender or gay and lesbian, um, bisexual and transgendered issues, that that we have a very formalistic view of equality, that everyone is going to be treated the same. That's compensatory in a way. Well, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's compensatory necessarily. I don't think that anybody is voting for Barack or um, Hillary because they think that somehow they need, um, you know, that, 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 that they don't have the qualities on their own to do a great job. I think, however, that alone they can't do a great job. I also think that George Bush alone, or even with the group that he has, can't do a great job. <laughs> so if what you're saying is that just measuring the statistics, right, 
I don't think that we would have a robust democracy even if half of the Congress were women and um, uh, 12% of the Congress were black and 15% of the Congress were Latino. I mean, I, I think it would be a much more interesting democracy, but I don't think that that alone would, would, would create enough uh, traction because my sense is, and now you can make the counter argument, but at least then you'd have a critical mass and that could start things changing. But my sense is that when people who've been outside become part of the, the system, the structure, they often feel compelled to begin to operate as one of the insiders in order to maintain their legitimacy, in order to gain the respect of their peers. So Suzanne Marie Gordon wrote a book about 20 years ago called, that was um, a critique of uh, the women's movement, and it was called something like Prisoners of Men's Dreams. And the idea was that it was men who created this system and we have now allowed their dreams to define us, and we just want to be part of their system, right? So it would be as if the boys in the golf ball relay race said, well, you created this relay race, and we just want to win a few times, even though this is not the best way of deciding who's going to be the leader in um, all games that are played by the students. Sure. Thanks for your question. Uh, hi, I'm Angela Romano. I've heard you before. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on the story you told about the uh, girls and why they uh, won. Uh, and also, I just wanted to speak to the question of uh, race and, uh, and, and uh, gender and say, I don't like uh, voting for a person just because she's a, you know, a woman and how a lot of people feel conflicted around that, that issue. Okay, well, those are two different um, questions, although they're related. I think that um, I, I think there's a danger of essentializing people based on their race or their gender. Essentializing meaning that just because you are a woman or just because you are black or just because you are Asian American that you have a certain set of um, predictable views or a certain set of um, behaviors. On the other hand, I do think that if you are in a society in which you are disadvantaged systematically, and let me just give you, a, this is a very um, simple example. I'm left-handed. I don't consider it a disadvantage. But every time I go to sign my credit card forms, they hand me the form this way as if I'm going to sign it with my right hand, and I have to switch it. It's not a big deal, but it does make you very conscious that there's something different about you because every time they give it to you one way and you have to turn it. So if you live your life in which you are outside of the mainstream or the or, or of a set of norms, you do have to develop certain adaptive qualities or a certain perspective that allows you at least to see that there is a norm. People who are right-handed don't even think of that as a norm. They just think about it as that's automatic. That's how that's how you write. So I do feel that if you, it's not because you're a woman or because you're black or because you're Latino, it's because our society has made those identities a source of different treatment. And it is the product of that different treatment, which may not, I, I don't consider it discriminatory that I have to switch the um, uh, credit card um, receipt, 
but it's, it's just different. And when you are treated differently, you develop a perspective from outside. And it's that outsider perspective which can give you, it, it can make you angry, but it can also give you insight. And it can give you insight into the fact that it doesn't always have to be this way. So, so that's to say, on the one hand, I don't want to essentialize, but on the other hand, I do feel that there, that there is a significance, a cultural and psychological and behavioral significance to being systemically disadvantaged or marginalized or just treated differently. So that's number one. Now having said that, in terms of the relay race, I do experience a difference in terms of collaboration when I am dealing with a group of all women versus when I am the only woman in a group of all men. And I am not here to say to you that that's because the men are men with, um, you know, different chromosomes. Or, or, or it's, I think, a function of nature, nurture, whatever it is. It, 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 it is something that I do experience, that the women tend to be more collaborative, that the women are less hierarchical, that the women are, um, are, are willing to pitch in to do things even when they're not asked to do them. Which is not to say, I mean, I co-authored a book with a man, so it's not that, you know, I'm married to a man, I have um, a son, and I love them all, right? <laughs> so when you ask about the relay race, I do think that when you're talking about a team sport, where the team is constituted for the first time, right? It's not that the girls and the boys in that particular example had worked together before that it may be easier for people who have not been permitted to um, to develop as an individual who is in charge, or have not been encouraged to develop as an individual who, are in, who is in charge, or have not seen other people as individuals who are in charge, may have a more collaborative uh, spirit. That was certainly one of the ways in which the academics were deconstructing the, the gender dynamics of, of this um, relay race. But on the other hand, I've seen, you know, you've seen uh, uh, football teams and basketball teams with men collaborating, you know, in amazing ways. So, it, so I'm not saying it's inherent, but it, but it may be that that, that there's a, there's a way in which people who have been treated differently have an appetite or an instinct for a, a, a different way of knowing or a different way of being. Let me just give you another example. So I teach in a law school and. This is um, something that's actually been of uh, great interest to me because I have done a number of studies on the uh, fact that women don't participate as much in class as men. They don't raise their hand, they don't volunteer, and they often have very wonderful things to say, but they tend to hold back. They want to make sure what they're saying is well thought out. They edit their comments. They... Um, uh, they, they wait for the right time so they can build on what somebody else has said. And I mention this in the context of the political scene because of the comment Hillary Clinton made recently that uh, the media was treating her differently by giving her the first question all the time. In the law school context, getting the first question or raising your hand to be the first is agenda setting, right? So that's, a, that's considered a position of power to be the first. 
I think what she was saying is it didn't give her as much time to think and that what she really wanted was an opportunity to digest the question and respond to what her um, uh, opponent, Barack Obama, was saying. Well, that's a very different way of thinking about being first, right? So that may be gendered. It may just be experiential. It may be because she's um, behind in the polls, right? I mean, there are lots of explanations for it. I don't want to suggest it's, it's just gender. But I do think it's interesting that for some people, being first is considered a sign of respect. It's considered a sign of power. In, in the law school classroom, when you are first, you set the agenda for the rest of the conversation, and everyone else goes along with that. And the women who hold back and want to think and want to edit often are discounted. That is, they are not as, um, they're not as influential in terms of shaping the conversation. So it's a very interesting dynamic. I don't think there's one answer to it. But I guess I would conclude by saying I think it's very important that we notice it and that we don't just say everyone is the same and we're going to treat everyone the same and, and none of these differences matter. And part of the reason I think we need to notice it is because it allows us to observe the norms. It allows us to see things that are otherwise invisible, otherwise naturalized, otherwise taken for granted. And it may be that once we see the norms, we're happy with them. But we should at least be aware that we are naturalizing a set of behaviors and that we're comfortable with that rather than just taking it for granted. Nine. Should have said that. Hi, my name's Lori Arbeiter, and I'm with a group called The Critical Voice and a group called ART. Um, and we actually recognize everyone in this room as the critical voice. Um, we, we actually um, had a teach, uh, have a t-shirt campaign on which we have written in many languages the statement, we will not be silent. Um, what we've been uh, organizing over the last years, um, and I have been uh, since uh, 2000, actually, I, I recognized we needed change when the Supreme Court interrupted our elections in Broward County and began what we see now as a, as a long reign of an abusive power. And I want to say that um, I've been, and one of the most powerful things for me was when I stepped through the, um, the doors of the, I guess it was the Russell Building, the Senate Building in Washington, um, not thinking they were going to let me in, actually. This was several years ago at this, uh, I guess two years ago, State of the Union address. And I went in and just started distributing cards and materials inside there, realizing that we should be in those halls and we should bring our marches into the halls. Now, what I've noticed, though, is that what's great, a great concern, especially since the uh, 2006 election when the Democrats took uh, took back the, the House and Senate. Um, we've seen gross abuse of power, and we've seen crimes committed at the highest level of office. And we've, what I see now is obstruction of justice in this country. And certainly with the confirmation of Mukasey, which Charles Schumer and Dianne Feinstein had a hand in, I was in those hearings holding up a sign that said, does America have a conscience, while they were in committee. I was in the committee room. What do we do when there, when for me, it feels like there's not only, there's a collaboration now on both sides of the aisle to obstruct justice 
I wear this shirt. It has the articles of impeachment on the back. I've traveled all through the country, truck stops in Alabama, Louisiana. I get out of my car in Waco, Texas, wearing it. And I'm finding people wanting to put it on their back. I distribute them. And we have a majority of the people that would be grateful tomorrow if impeachment hearings began. And we have people like John Conyers who will not, you know, will well, not, I th I and, think and I want to know what, what do we do when we have a majority? We have people speaking out. We have people participating and we're not being listened to. First of all, I think you should ask all of the people in this room what they would be prepared to do, assuming they agree with you. I think that was part of your point. But I also, um, I think it was part of my point. It's not enough to elect a Democrat or elect a Republican or elect a really good person to office if they don't have the wind at their back. And in some ways, what we have seen is that you know the, the air has been let out of the balloon and people have been very deferential and, and pacified through a, um, a, a number of projects that are not just about partisan politics, they're also about uh, you know, corporate capitalism, they're, they're about um, greed, the media, well that's part of corporate capitalism. I mean, where the, the, the media is, is, especially television, is not functioning to air issues of public importance. They are functioning to make money, right? They're, the, the purpose of the media is so that they can sell products through commercials. So all of those things have, in some ways, disconnected us. I think it's great that you are a person of principle who's acting on your own, but on the other hand, I also think you need to be part of a much larger movement to have an effect. And I am not an organizer, so I can't tell you how to build a movement, but there are people who can talk to you about building a movement, not just a lone voice in the wilderness. So, so we have built, I mean, we've distributed thousands of these. We have, you know, we have that going. I'm saying that. Right, but distributing t-shirts is not a movement. Well, no, there's a, we have people that are actually I mean, you, if, if I were you, I think it's really important to study the evangelical Christians and the comment about Buckley, I agree with that. Study what the right did and learn from it. They had a sense of um, despair that they had lost. The understanding was that liberalism was the hegemonic um, ideology of the U.S. post-World um, War II. And they, their view of success was not simply winning a particular policy battle, it was changing the frame of reference. And they were, it didn't matter whether they lost, because they were going to continue this campaign. They, they, they were on a moral crusade. So I really think you have to expand your time frame. But, I, but, but good luck. Hello, my name is Adrian DeKalb, and I want to thank you for your presentation. And I was very stimulated by your the concept of who designed the game, and um, and the changing of the guard versus the changing of the design of the rule. And from that space, can you comment on the role and significance of third parties, like the Green Party, Nader, and not only their significance in this election, but the the system coming from that space of no, it's changing. it's a very good question because. Winner-take-all single-member districts, by its very nature, means that third parties are marginal. 
And what I mean is, if you have to get to 51% of the votes in order to get a seat in a collective decision-making body, right, 51%, you're already one of the major parties. By definition, a minor party cannot get to 51% of the votes because then it would no longer be a minor party. So that's the point of single transferable votes. That's the point of um, other PR systems, uh, party list systems. When South Africa, for example, went to all-race democracy after years of apartheid, they adopted a PR system. It was a party list system. And 64% of the votes went to the um, uh, to Nelson Mandela's ANC party, and they got 64% of the seats in the national legislature. The Inkatha Freedom Party got about 11% of the votes. They got 11% of the seats. And then the white Afrikaners had a party. They got about 17% of the votes. They got 17% of the seats. Well, the white Afrikaners and the Inkatha Freedom Party were minor parties compared to the ANC, which got 64% of the votes. In our system, you would have had a legislature that only had people from the ANC because we would divide up the districts in a way to, if you're the ANC, you would divide every district so that you made sure you were, you had 51% of the votes in every district. And then the people, the Inkatha Freedom Party and the white Afrikaners, they could go to the polls as much as they wanted. They would waste their vote every time because they would only be 49% of the votes at uh, most. So that's the big problem with winner-take-all, is that the 49% who lose are represented by somebody they voted against, and you can't get new ideas into the mix because you have to be a major party in order to have a chance of getting close to 51%. But most other countries, Germany after World War II, under our supervision and that of Great Britain, adopted a PR system. Actually, they have a mixed system. They have single-member districts and PR. But the PR is there to compensate for differences that um, arise as a result of the single-member district. So most countries use some form of proportionality because they understand that you want to have a legislature that reflects the span of views. It is not giving the minority majority power. It is not Israel. Israel has a threshold of exclusion of 1.5%. Now, when I say a threshold of exclusion, that's what is the, um, the, the minimum number of um, uh, votes that you can get and still get, elect, get a seat in the Knesset. So you can get 1.5% of the um, votes. It's an uh, Israel-wide, country-wide vote. That means that a fringe party can get elected with 1.5% of the vote. But you can create a threshold of 5%. You could create a threshold of 7%. You could have a threshold of 10%. Right? That's something when you're designing the game, you say we don't want to have parties that can't get to a certain threshold. So it's not built into PR. That's a choice Israel made because they wanted to represent more um, views. But it's not a choice that every PR uh, system makes. You're not going to trick me into asking about the Yemens because I have my own question. Okay, now, I was not intending to trick you. Yeah, I know it was a trick. Anyway, you're a lawyer, right? Uh, yes. Right. So my but, question... Uh, what are you? A, are you a lawyer? Um, no, I'm not. Oh, okay. Just checking. I'm a lady, you know. Sort of. Anyway, my question is this. 
I, first I gotta say, I don't believe there's been a democracy. I don't believe that the, the Constitution has been held up. I don't believe the Declaration of Dependence has been held up. All of these things are supposed to be law, and the laws have been broken over and over again. I don't understand this. But my question is this. You know who Archie Bunker is, right? Well, the character Archie. I've seen the character, The character yes. Archie Bunker, okay. So I'm rolling up in my little movie, you know, um, 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 festival, and I run into Norman Lear. Right. Now, there were five original copies of the Declaration of Independence that had three pages on slavery that was edited out by Madison, written by Jefferson. Four, we don't know where they're at. Oddly enough, Norman Lear owns one of the copies of the Declaration of Independence, originally written by Jefferson, the real thing, with these first three pages. Of course, my article was hilarious. Archie Bunk owns the Declaration of Independence. Now, well, how is that legally possible There's somebody such as Norman Lear, of all people, who told me, incidentally, that Archie Bunker, even though he was Jewish, was actually his father, who posed as a white man and was racist against Jews and everybody else. Okay, you're losing me. So, my question is this. How can someone, an individual, own a document like this? I, I find that outrageous. Not that I have anything against Norman Lear, I just think that anybody owning something like that is outrageous. It should be in a presidential library, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Okay, so I don't quite understand your question. How can it But I understand that last sentence. Capitalism. But there's no legalities against owning something like the Declaration of Independence? You, 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 we are going to have um, private companies owning the roads. We have private companies owning the airlines. We will have private companies... Um, I'm not talking about the roads and the airlines. I'm water. talking about basically the Constitution, the Declaration There's of nothing more important than water. Right. And Coca-Cola and other companies... Own water, that's right. Right, so... In other words... No. There is no law against something like that, obviously. Do you think there should be? My second question. <laughs> Do I think there should be a law against Norman Lear owning things like the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence? Well, I think we need to rethink a lot of the um, fundamental premises of our society, and that may be one of them, but I don't think I can... I'm, I'm not entirely um, clear on your question or the premise of your question or the facts behind your question before I... Do you think that an individual should own a document like the original Declaration of Independence? Is that not a clear question? In our society... It's not an unrelated question. She's a lawyer. We're talking about politics. That's a political document. It's not unrelated. Excuse me. So, and I'm not, I asked Listen, that. I don't think that individuals should own water. Okay. So I would go well beyond the Declaration of Independence. Okay. Since I designed this game today, 
Um, I think we need to close now. I know there are a couple more questions, but we do have a reception after this um, in the Salzburger parlor where you can continue to have some conversation with Professor Guinier and with each other, continue the two-minute conversation. But I, I believe that we need to close now. And I want to uh, please join me in thanking Professor Guinier for such a marvelous talk. Thank you. Thank you all. Oops.